the Popey Podcast You Didn't Know You Needed, where we talk history through Pope-colored glasses and some of the craziest, most popular stories you've never heard of. It's a real joy for us to welcome you all here. I would like to invite each of you to listen. Do not be afraid. P.A. Jesu Domine. This is a popular popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. History through Pope Color Glasses. My name is Greg, and this is episode four. The House of David. In this episode, we'll continue our tour through the Old Testament as the fourth part of our world-building series meant to help explain Catholic Christianity and the stories and cultures that left their mark on it before we start looking at history using our Pope-colored glasses. As a reminder, we're not quite at judges' level violence, but there's still plenty I'd keep away from my kids. I don't go into gory details, but I'd still say we're looking at at least PG, probably PG-13, not G. As an additional reminder that's probably getting familiar, This is in no way a careful, comprehensive, or reverent summary. Rather, this tour is meant to be a way to help get everyone on more or less the same page before we start going on to our main focus of history through Pope-colored glasses. I'll be skipping plenty, and I promise you I will fail to reflect in any meaningful way on the significance these stories have outside this podcast's narrowly defined lens of Christianity, specifically Catholic Christianity. Now there's one more bit of housekeeping, and this one's actually new. We're getting to the point in the overall timeline, we're now at about the 11th century BC, where there's a sufficient amount of archaeological evidence to fuel robust academic debates on the real people described in the stories I'm telling you. Stuff like who they were and what they really did. Once we get to Peter, we'll pop on our critical thinking caps as best we can and talk about what the archaeological evidence suggests and how it might be different from the written sources. Until then, we're here to understand how the popes of yore and the people they interacted with would have understood the scriptures and what Bible stories would have been familiar to them. What actually happened is interesting, but is not in the scope of our podcast. A podcast that all that is in the scope of is the History in the Bible podcast by Gary Stevens I mentioned in my collaboration recommendation last week. So I'm going ahead and doubling down on Mr. Stevens by making History in the Bible my podcasting recommendation for this episode. Oh, and speaking of last episode, the beginning of our next story is going to sound very familiar if you tuned in to Judge Samson's origin story. Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. The prophet Samuel's mother was getting on in years and was apparently unable to have a child, which of course also harkens back to the days of Abram turned Abraham and Sarai turned Sarah, but the Samson vibes come through especially strong because the solution to Hannah's lack of a child was to promise that any child born would, like Samson, be raised as a Nazarite from birth. And so it came to pass that Hannah wound up with a son named Samuel, who was dedicated to God, a Nazarite from birth, and who was raised in the temple by the high priest Eli. Now, we'll run with Samuel in a moment, but before we do, I want to remind folks that Eli was specifically a descendant of Moses' brother Aaron, who, back in Exodus, God chose to be the high priest for Israel. We didn't get into that, but I'm telling you now, with the line continuing through Aaron's descendants, including Eli. 
The Aaronic Priesthood will pop up again later, and we'll dig into it further as we go, so we'll put a pin in that for now. Soon enough, young Samuel began hearing God calling to him, initially thinking it was his foster father, Eli. But after a bit of back and forth, Eli realizes what's up and helps Samuel start his prophetic career, advising that when Samuel hears his name again, he is to say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Now this anecdote might not seem like much, but translated in different ways, it's a frequent motif used when Christians start praying and trying to hear what God wants them to do, which is an almost universal experience for teen and college-age Christians. Discerning God's will for you. Ah, those were the days. Now, I, I don't miss that angst one bit. Now, we're not too far after the days of our old friend Samson, and his favorite enemies the Philistines are warring with the Israelites again. Samuel starts to fill the role of a judge and leads the Israelites against those darn Philistines with some success, but as the years passed, he eventually runs into a problem. His sons aren't worthy to succeed him in his opposition to the Philistines, and there's pressure building, with most folks now agreeing that a successor to Samuel's judgeship is definitely needed. In short, the people want a king. King Saul. Now, Samuel actually isn't too keen on this idea, warning the people against it. But eventually, he identifies Saul as God's choice for the role. Samuel anoints him king, and off we go. Now, to skip forward a bit, it turns out the Lord works in mysterious ways. Or to put it in less pious terms, we see once again that God is surprisingly bad at choosing folks, because Saul definitely doesn't pan out. Now, to be clear, King Saul's most significant fault is that he doesn't genocide hard enough. When God tells Saul through Samuel that he needs to utterly destroy the Amalekites, Saul has the nerve to leave at least one survivor and not kill all their livestock as well. Naturally, this really bugs the all-merciful God, who decides that since King Saul refused to genocide hard enough, he needs punished. Long story short, Samuel personally executes the survivor, and Saul is cancelled. And now it's time for a young man named David to take the reins. King David If you only remember one name from this episode, and I apologize in advance, but there's going to be a lot of names in this episode, if you only remember one, though, remember David. He's off the charts on the Cohen scale with the clear verse and a half, and he's referenced in the primary symbol of the Jewish religion, the Star of David. Yes, this is that David. But before he's that David, it's time for Samuel, who, as a reminder, had consecrated the now out-of-favor King Saul, to consecrate the next king. Despite Saul's repentance, and the fact that, as a reminder, his sin was not killing absolutely everyone and all the animals God commanded. Spoiler alert, David will fall short too, and at a much less evil chore, but he'll get a second chance. We're not diving into all that, there's theological hand-waving and excuses we could explore beneath the surface, but man, on the surface, Saul gets done dirty here, and to say the least, God doesn't come across as reasonable. Explaining how God actually is reasonable in this scenario definitely falls under apologetics, and this podcast is more about entertainment and history in that order than it is about apologetics. Anyways, Time to bring back some of that good old-fashioned Genesis feel with the fact that it turns out David is the youngest son of the family. David is duly anointed, 
and we've got youngest son on top again. And this time, in a big way. Pun intended, because it's time for one of the most famous David stories. David and Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine giant. Most often I saw his height listed at 9 foot something, a giant indeed. There's some variance though, and I saw 6.5 feet listed as well, which would still be pretty large today, and would have been even larger 3,000 years ago, when folks generally ran smaller. A quick glance tells me that the average height thousands of years ago was over 4 inches smaller than the average height today. But Goliath could be a billion feet tall, and he wouldn't stand a chance here, because last born David, not Saul, sorry Saul, is the hero of the story here, so not to put too fine a point on it, that means David's gonna win. Goliath gets got with a stone from David's slingshot, and David cuts off the giant's head. If the stone didn't kill him, that sure did. Why was King David fighting Goliath the Philistine anyways? Well, he had joined up with Saul's army after Samuel had anointed him. While fighting in Saul's army, David became close friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. I'm just going to go ahead and read a passage about that and let you take it as you will. Let's just say it's received a variety of interpretations over the years. Quote, Now it came about, when he had finished speaking to Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and that Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day, and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, and gave it to David, with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out, wherever Saul sent him, and prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war. End quote. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1-5 through 5. Now, if you think this whole serving in the army of the man you have already been anointed to replace thing might make for a weird dynamic, you're absolutely right. Despite Jonathan's surprising warmth, Daddy Saul is not on board. However, for added fun, when Saul gets frustrated and goes into fits over his doomed situation for not doing genocide for God or whatever, it's David, again, presumably himself a significant source of Saul's frustration, who is sent in to calm him down. And, wouldn't you know it, David's sweet, sweet, soothing musicianship and lyre skills earned him his first spot on the Cohen scroll with the full verse right up front. Now I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord, but you don't really care for music, do ya? Goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift. I don't want a copyright lawsuit, yeah, so I'm just kind of doing like this. Okay. Anyway, so yeah, I changed that line a bit, but yeah. David soothes Saul and also marries one of his daughters, Michal, spelled like Michael, but without the E. By the way, the dowry for that is totally 100 Philistine foreskins, which David actually pays twofold, presumably because he really enjoys collecting tips. I have no desire to know what Saul ultimately does with this. You know, I was just about all set to call it an unusual dowry, but frankly, give me a ton of penis skin flaps is actually pretty much par for the biblical course so far. And don't be afraid, or do, because the whole foreskin thing will absolutely follow us into the papacy. Just you wait. Now, as things continue to heat up between Saul and David, Samuel, the man who had anointed both, dies. Which I actually bring up so that it will make more sense when I mention that at one point, before a battle with the Philistines, 
Saul has a witch, specifically the witch of Endor, cue lightsaber sounds, to call up his ghost to tell him how the next day's battle was going to go. The answer? Not well, especially because A, Samuel had basically already told Saul that when he was still alive, and B, seances are super frowned upon by God. So the next day, Saul is killed by the Philistines. <coughs> sorry, Saul. Mary Sue, sorry, I mean David, is now king of Judah. Not all of Israel yet, just the one tribe. One of Saul's sons, who I won't bother you with the name of, took over as king for the rest of Israel for a few years. In any case, it's montage time, as David is eventually accepted as the king of all 12 tribes of Israel, and then proceeds to defeat the Philistines and recapture the Ark of the Covenant, which they had taken. That's the one holding the tablets with the Ten Commandments and a few other knickknacks like manna and such. And then David takes over Jerusalem, which actually wasn't in Israelite hands up until this point in our narrative, and also picking up more wives and concubines, though it's not clear how many more, along the way. I suspect David himself was starting to lose count at this point. Then, David does a fairly famous celebratory dance before the recaptured Ark, wearing a leather ephod and little or perhaps nothing else. If you're wondering, as near as we can tell, an ephod is something more or less like an apron with more substantial shoulders. Not substantial enough for first wife Michal, who basically complains he's embarrassing himself in front of God and everybody. David's response is basically that embarrassing himself in front of God is the point, and this helps fuel some of the quote, holy fool tradition we'll explore at some point. By the way, it's implied Michal is left childless as a consequence of her criticism. For the next stretch, the biblical narrative actually does do a fair bit of sharing the love among a fair number of heroes in the story, the heroes being David's military commanders and so forth that do great feats like killing Goliath's twelve-fingered and twelve-toed brother, as well as a slew of other Philistines. David himself also does a good job <laughs> sharing the love between no less than seven wives at this point. Now it's time for David to totally merit a death of his own under the law of Moses, because he is going to commit adultery, and frankly, particularly gratuitous adultery. Seriously. Well, your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof. Her beauty and the moonlight overthrew ya. Whose beauty? Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Great hero, specifically listed among King David's 37 mighty men, who is fiercely loyal to David, as we'll see. Yes, that Uriah the Hittite. Cohen basically already covered it. Bathsheba was bathing and was visible to David, who liked what he saw from his balcony, or his window, or whatever. And no one says no to the king. This ends up being the biggest scandal of David's reign. Bathsheba ends up pregnant, which is a problem because Uriah hasn't been sleeping with her lately, basically taking the women weakens legs advice from Rocky, because he wants to focus on his military service for David. Trying to cover his butt, David tries to get him to take some time off, but Uriah refuses to chill with his gal while his men are risking their lives, which is noble and all, but is really inconvenient for David. David proceeds to arrange for Uriah to be killed, having him put on the front line and having his commander pull the other men back. And just as a reminder, Saul was apparently worse than David for not fully committing to genocide. As it turns out, murder doesn't solve all of King David's problems. Who knew? A new, well, 
new to us, prophet, Nathan, rocks up and informs David that God knows his dirty little secrets and will punish him. Apparently, this punishment goes through his child, because although David has earned death in multiple counts under the law of Moses, the sentence is carried out on the child Bathsheba conceived with David. Things work out in the end, I suppose, at least for David, because he makes Bathsheba wife number eight, and they proceed to have other children, including Solomon, David's eventual successor. But before we get to succession, we've got to cover attempted succession. David's son Absalom, one of many, as you might imagine, rebels against him. It gets pretty far, like David ends up in exile with a few loyal forces while Absalom controls the whole dang kingdom. But long story short, Absalom's beautiful flowing hair gets caught in a tree, and he ends up assassinated while stuck, against the orders of King David, who had ordered that his son be unharmed. Now, let's talk succession a little more before we take one more major detour. I promise we'll get to Solomon eventually. First things first, the fact that the line of David has a successor handy isn't a surprise for anyone involved, not least because of those eight-plus wives David has accumulated. But there's also an additional supernatural assurance as well, because before the prophet Nathan had chastised David for the whole adultery-slash-murder combo, he had been praising David for his plans to build a better house for the Ark of the Covenant, and, by extension, for God. In fact, Nathan, through the medium of prophecy, had been praising these plans so highly that he had actually promised David that his family line would be an eternal one, a concept which... Just over a thousand years from now, Christians will absolutely run with. As it happens, Jesus is listed as the descendant of King David. Well, Jesus and, like, everyone else. Like, the line of David is the prime conspiracy hotspot when it comes to Judaism, more or less the equivalent of the Knights Templar. But honestly, it may even go beyond that. One thread I followed while doing research for this episode led me to a site that claimed descent from the line of David... For the House of Windsor. And then the next link took it up a level by casually mentioning that Odin, as in the Norse deity Odin, is descended from the line of David. I'm really not sure how that works, since last I checked, Odin isn't even human, but boy oh boy is it a trip. And don't worry, we'll circle back to wild theories in due course, because boy oh boy are there ever some fun theories about and around the popes and we'll absolutely get into those one day, assuming we ever get out of our prologue. The Lion of David might be everlasting according to a prophecy, but David himself isn't. Sensing the end, he has Solomon anointed as a successor through Zadok the priest. David dies of natural causes after a reign of about 40 years, leaving his son Solomon in charge. Now, before we carry on with Solomon, we've got that last major detour I promised a minute ago. The Psalms. Now's as good a time as any, since many of these psalms are attributed to David. If you sub in the word songs for psalms, you'll pretty much have the gist. Now, the psalms were originally set to music. From what I saw snooping around, it's generally agreed that the tunes are lost to history, though we certainly do have notations about which instruments should be used, and the names, if not the contents, of several of the intended melodies. Interestingly, there actually is a claim floating around that the Tonus Peringanus, a setting for Psalm 114 that's certainly ancient, actually is the original setting. I don't 
personally believe that, but it's too good a rumor to not pass on to you. Altogether, the Book of Psalms is a collection of 150 songs. In some traditions, there are more, but we're being Catholic here, so 150. If you're thinking that the Book of Psalms must be divided into 150 chapters to match those 150 psalms, you'd be right. And if you're more of a tired old cynic who thinks it's never as simple as all that, well, you're also right, because there are two different systems for numbering the psalms. They both start with 1 and end with 150, but between Psalms 10 and 147, they diverge on exactly what the number should be due to some differences in which verses should be combined and which should be separate. During this split, the Hebrew-based numbering is higher, but there is a bit of a silver lining in that the numbering is never more than one off. So if someone cites a chapter and verse in the book of Psalms and you're not seeing the same basic thing when you look at your Bible, try the next psalm over. These days, most Bibles just go with the Hebrew numbering scheme, but some older translations, especially in the Catholic world, like the Latin Vulgate and the Douay Reims English translation, go with the Greek approach, or they list both. Now, apart from a rather glib discussion on the Tower of Babel, part of my observations of the Tetragrammaton, and some mentions of old-timey language possibly signifying old Bible passages, I don't believe I've properly talked about the languages used in the Bible yet. So we'll make that our diversion within the diversion. Since the Bible is a collection of books spread across hundreds of years, written in different areas and for different purposes, it should be no surprise to anyone that the Bible is written in multiple languages. As you may have already heard, or may have just inferred from our discussion of the numbering of the Psalms, primarily the Bible is written in Hebrew for the Old Testament, and Greek for the New Testament. There are some exceptions, especially when folks or writings are quoted, but that's 90% or more the general rule. Of course, when I say Hebrew and Greek, I am referring to older forms of those languages, namely Classical Hebrew and Koine Greek. Not Classical Greek, mind you, because that's actually an older form of Greek than what's in the Bible. Some quick perusing of the many times that the basic question has been asked and answered online, which is not to be confused with proper research or even personal experience, so don't quote me on it. Anyways, a quick ask around suggests that for someone fluent in modern Hebrew, Studying and reading Classical Hebrew is a bit like a modern English speaker engaging with Shakespeare. I.e., it's doable, but you need some help. And certainly, there's plenty of help available. Koine Greek and Modern Greek are closer still. While I'm throwing linguistic tidbits at you, note that the overall best-loved and most-referenced Hebrew version of the Bible is what's called the Masoretic Text. That text is named after the Masoretes, who tied it down in the early medieval era, their name being a nod to Masora, a collective term for Jewish religious tradition. The Masoretic Text, abbreviated by scripture nerds as the MT, is THE authoritative text in Rabbinic Judaism. As I understand it, the Masoretes also brought aboard the vowels that dance around the letters of the sacred text that I talked about in the last episode, so we can thank them for that as well. Though I took four credits of Hebrew, and I think I eked out a C, so take all of my alleged knowledge here with several grains of salt. Now, the best-loved and most-referenced Greek translation of the Hebrew original is called the Septuagint, which gets its name, ironically, from Septuaginta, which is Latin for 70, from the story of how 70 scholars working independently miraculously came up with the exact same translation. Whether or not that's the case, it's the oldest translation we have intact. In fact, 
it's likely how several New Testament figures became familiar with the Hebrew Bible. If you see LXX mentioned in a Bible footnote, it's a reference to the Septuagint, since that's 70 in Roman numerals. Another translation that's handy to know about is the Vulgate, the main Latin translation, which we'll talk about in the main show, since it was commissioned by Pope Damasus I. I've also got the Dead Sea Scrolls, another frequent Bible topic, flagged, not as a papal project, though there are probably conspiracy theories to that effect, but as a significant find that recent popes have engaged with in ways worth reviewing. Now, I want to make sure you hear the most famous psalm, lest I be accused of giving you an incomplete review. Plus, it'll give you an example to hang your hat on. Folks, here's Psalm 23. Quote, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. End quote. King Solomon. You may have heard of the wisdom of Solomon. Early in his reign, Solomon has a dream where God offers him a blessing of his choice. Solomon asks for wisdom, which God willingly grants, and God decides to give him prestige and wealth to boot. Since this is the Bible, dream blessings have a real impact. The descriptions of the wealth and prestige that are features of Solomon's reign are over the top and themselves legendary. A thousand years from this point, when Christ is emphasizing the beauty of creation by telling folks to consider the lilies of the field, it is Solomon he references as an example of the pinnacle of human glory. Quote, Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. Yet I say unto you that even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God doth so clothe the grass of the field which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Be not therefore anxious. End quote. Matthew chapter 6, verses 28 through 31. And yet, day-to-day -day anxieties and chores are a fact of life. One of Solomon's chores was weighing in on legal cases, and there's one particularly famous judgment we should cover. Quote, now two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, Pardon me, my lord. This woman and I live in the same house, and I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son, and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't the son I had born. But the other woman said, No, the living one is my son, the dead one is yours. 
But the first insisted, No, the dead is yours, the living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. The king said, This one says, My son is alive, and your son is dead. While that one says, No, your son is dead, and mine is alive. Then the king said, Bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king. He then gave an order, Cut the living child in two, and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was deeply moved out of love for her son and said to the king, Please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, Neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Then the king gave his ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe, because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. End quote. First Kings, chapter 3, verses 16 to 28. Solomon's renowned wisdom was evidently the motivating force behind a similarly famous visit he receives from the unnamed Queen of Sheba, who comes with a tremendous load of fantastic gifts and some evidently head-scratching riddles which are unfortunately not recorded, or else I'd totally hit you with them now. I know. Sorry to disappoint. I hope they're better than Samson stuff. What is recorded in some detail is the temple. As a reminder, this is the temple to house the Ark of the Covenant, which is the <laughs> fancy box that houses the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments and a few other knickknacks from around the time of Moses. This is the same Ark that melts Nazi faces in that Indiana Jones movie, and it's got its own obvious significance within Judaism as essentially the spot where God dwells on earth, going back to the days when God was leading the way as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of flame by night. It is God's presence that sanctifies the focal point of the temple, the area of the Holy of Holies, which still today is what makes the Temple Mount a highly contentious piece of real estate. Now from our budding Catholic perspective, the Ark has a significance as a biblical type as well. Now, if you don't remember what biblical types and antitypes are, they're kind of near the beginning of episode 2. The Ark, as the container for the presence of God, is understood as a type for Mary, the mother of Jesus, who carried God into the world as the Theotokos, a.k.a. the God-bearer. In a similar way, there are pretty clear comparisons to be made between the Ark and Catholic tabernacles, those fancy boxes that hold the consecrated bread signified in every Catholic church I can think of with the red candle. Sorry for the diversion, but I cannot emphasize enough how much the Catholic mind thinks of the local tabernacle in the local church when they read about the Ark in Solomon's Temple and how commonly parallels are drawn between Mary and the Ark. And since this is building up to a papal history podcast, that Catholic perspective is what we're emphasizing as we lay the groundwork. Now for the trouble spots of Solomon's reign. In a nutshell, and this probably isn't too surprising, his problems are blamed on women. Specifically, foreign women. Very specifically, those among his 300 wives and 700 concubines who worshiped gods other than the God of Israel and caused them to lose some of his shine in the eyes of the Lord as he allowed them to import their idols and build shrines and worship their traditional gods. Eventually, Solomon himself begins to worship idols, which really honks off God, and honking off God leads to bad news. In this case, 
the bad news is that all but one tribe will be lost to Solomon's descendants. Now, let's go ahead and linger in the limelight of Solomon for a little while longer before we face the harsh reality that is the splintering of the kingdom. Fortunately, this is Solomon we're talking about, so there's plenty to explore. In fact, there are four full books of the Bible attributed to Solomon, along with two psalms, Psalm 72 and Psalm 127, that bear his name. Four books, you say? You, in this theoretical being a person more generally knowledgeable in scripture than I am, who opted to come along for the ride and the lulls anyways on these episodes. I thought Solomon wrote just three Bible books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. What am I missing? Well, if you're asking that in that way, you're missing the Book of Wisdom. And you're going to go right on missing the Book of Wisdom, at least for now. I'll be running through the Deuterocanon in pretty full detail in episode 7. While we're making promises about the future, I'm also going to save discussing the Song of Songs for another day as well. Which leaves Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. The Book of Proverbs. I'll just mention that the Oxford Learner's Dictionary defines a proverb as a well-known phrase or sentence that gives advice or says something that is generally true, for example, waste not, want not, and that proverbs is a big catalog of such insights, not including waste not, want not, but indeed including pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, Proverbs 16.18, which may sound familiar. Now, there's something rather suitable about our last thought on King Solomon being the book of Ecclesiastes, because Ecclesiastes is a reflection on how all of human activity is basically pointless in light of death, though he does say we should enjoy life while we can. Quote, vanity, vanity, all things are vanity, end quote. Chapter 1, verse 2, and, quote, nothing new under the sun, end quote. Chapter 1, verse 9. These are famous snippets from the introduction of the book, which carries on in that vein. It's a bit surprising that this made it into the Bible cut, but hey, there you have it. Oh, it does have a great burn on humanity in general when it declares, the number of fools is infinite. Ouch. That's another zinger from chapter 1, which is easily a barn burner. That's verse 15, by the way. And so it came to pass that after 40 years as king of all Israel... Solomon died, and the bulk of his kingdom ended up with one of his commanders, Jeroboam, as the northern kingdom of Israel, a.k.a. the kingdom of Samaria, named after Samaria, their main capital, while his son Rehoboam ended up with the much smaller kingdom of Judah to the south, composed only of the lands of the tribe of, you guessed it, Judah, and also Benjamin, which is actually slightly better than God had told Solomon would happen, i.e., one tribe only left to Solomon's family. But who's counting? Well, someone's counting, because eventually the kingdom of Samaria will go down as the ten lost tribes of Israel, food for many future conspiracy theories. But we're not quite there yet. Where we are now is the reign of David's grandson and Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the third king of Israel. Now, I've got a handy chart here that I'll be referencing a lot to get us through the next few hundred years at a fairly good clip that basically gives us the kings of Judah with a thumbs up or a thumbs down from God. Now, the particulars of really any king of either Israel or Judah won't really play into our papal narrative, though a very high-level overview is still handy 
And I do want to leave you with the general understanding that in God's eyes, getting rid of idols is good. Not getting rid of idols, much less worshiping them yourself, is bad. Now with this rating metric in mind, let's go with the kings of Judah. Rehoboam, son of Solomon, reigns 17 years and gets a mixed bag rating. Abijah, son of Rehoboam, reigns three years and gets a mixed bag rating. Asa, probable son of Abijah, reigns 41 years and gets a good then mixed bag. Jehoshaphat, son of Asa, reigns 25 years and gets a good. Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, reigns eight years and gets a bad. Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, reigns just one year and manages to get a wicked rating. Queen Athaliah, mother of Jehoram, reigns six years and gets a wicked rating, probably because she goes on a spree killing her own family. I'm pretty obviously skipping quite a bit here, including her own likely lineage as the daughter of the most famously wicked couple up in the kingdom of Samaria, King Ahab and his notorious wife Jezebel, which, if true, might have given her the family extermination idea, as that would mean her father and his 70 sons were murdered at God's command in an effort to destroy his dynasty. Now, I'm pretty pointedly ignoring the rest of the northern kingdom here for the sake of some brevity, but we will see Ahab and Jezebel again soon. Now, back to Athaliah, who dies at the hands of troops assigned to protect her grandson Joash, who had escaped her murderous spree. She is succeeded by that same grandson, Joash. So, Joash, grandson of Athaliah, reigns 40 years and gets a good then wicked. Amaziah, son of Joash, reigns 29 years and gets a good but not at heart. Which, ouch. Uzziah, son of Amaziah, reigns 52 years and gets a good then bad. Jotham, son of Uzziah, reigns 16 years and gets a good. Ahaz, son of Jotham, reigns 16 years and gets a wicked. I also have a note here that says sawn in half. So, uh, that's a note. I don't think that's referring to the king, but we'll look back at that. Someone sawn in half. Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, reigns 29 years and gets a good. Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, reigns 55 years and gets a wicked, then good. Ammon, son of Manasseh, reigns two years and gets a wicked. Josiah, son of Ammon, reigns 31 years and gets a good. Jehoahaz, son of Josiah, reigns only three months and gets a wicked. Jehoiakim, ooh, brother of Josiah, reigns 11 years and gets a wicked. Jehoiachim, son of Jehoiakim, reigns for three months and 10 days and gets a wicked. Zedekiah, uncle of Jehoiachim, reigns for 11 years and gets a wicked. Uh-oh, that many wickeds in a row must be bad news. And indeed it is. There are no more kings of Judah after Zedekiah. In fact, Zedekiah had been appointed by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar had deposed his predecessor Jehoiachim and that same king of Babylon had eaten up what had once been Judah with a series of exiles 
starting in 598 BC. That northern kingdom, Samaria by the way, had fallen to Assyria in 720 BC. Well, that's the kings, done and dusted. But the kings actually don't get the most airtime in the descriptions of this period. That distinction belongs to the prophets. For them, tune in next week for episode 0.5. Thus says the Lord. Before we go, thank you to my sound technician, Billy, for all the support and for the theme. Thank you to our logo designer, Russ. Thank you to the ever-patient and helpful with the editorial and other details, Vice Pope Mrs. Popular History. I'll see you all next time.